Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, Cody Townsend is back on the show to discuss, as we now do every month, some of the outdoors-oriented news of the month, and as is now our practice, you will be able to find links to the various stories and topics that we're going to cover here in the show notes to this episode, which you can find on whatever podcast app you're using on your phone, or you can find the show notes to this episode on our Blister website. Now, two quick things about this episode. First, Cody and I opened by talking about how we haven't seen a ton of snow in the West, and this evidently worked beautifully as a reverse jinx, because since Cody and I talked this past Friday, it has been snowing steadily here in Crested Butte, pretty much since we recorded our conversation, and it also now looks like Tahoe is about to get a whole bunch of new snow. So my point here is basically, you're all welcome. That's it. That and the fact that we're just freaking psyched to see all this snowfall. Now, one other thing, Cody and I talk a little bit about this new Blister Summit that we are launching here in Mount Crested Butte on February 18th. And of course, there will be a link to more information on the Blister Summit in the show notes to this podcast episode. And you know that because I just told you that like 11 seconds ago. But the long and short is that we believe that this is really going to be a significant new annual event in the snow sports world. We think the industry has needed an event like this for a long time. And you're going to hear us talk a little bit about why we think that. And something that is really important and really important to us here at Blister you are also going to get to hear Cody and me talk a bit about the precautions and the logistics and the modifications to this event and the protocols that we are following extremely closely to be able to make this first Blister Summit happen next month. So give it a listen and then you can learn more about the Blister Summit on our website. You can email us questions if you have any and long and short, we would love to have you come make history with us at this inaugural Blister Summit, a.k.a. Summit Zero, as we have been calling it. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Cody. Here we go. Well, Cody Townsend, it's that time of the month for us to uh, review the news. I am here, as you can see armed with my Mocha Master pot of coffee. So I, I'm ready to go. Sweet. I feel like I got this. I, I've got my my coffee ready to go too. Uh, I'm ready to go. You know, there's not much else to do right now <laughs> currently other than sit inside and record podcasts and stare at TV screens and read the news because as we all know, the snow either sucks or is all avalanching uh, across the West. Uh-huh. So, but we should probably start here. I mean, seriously, last time we recorded, you were in Girdwood, Alaska, talking mad shit about Jura coffee makers. I was literally concerned for your safety, but it seems like you've made it out alive. I think mostly this is a credit to the compassion and understanding and tolerance of the good people of Girdwood, Alaska. 
Yes, that must be because uh, I didn't receive a single comment in line. I even saw Paul forward and he didn't try and like stab me with his ski poles or anything. Um, so, yeah, no, they must have been very kind and held their opinions back and were just very, very kind with it. So they they let the the heathen go and escape from town. But I think maybe they just knew that they're like, yeah, he's just heading back to the lower 48 where there's yeah. snow. <laughs> so, and it's currently now snowed more than 480 inches at Alyeska Ski Resort. I know. It is unreal what is happening there this year. Yeah. I recorded a conversation yesterday, actually, with Eric Helmbrecht, the owner of Powderhound. In his very kind of understated manner, he was like, we're getting all the snow. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they are getting all of it. So, I mean, things have gotten so dire here. I, the other day, did something I've never done before, and I thought I would never quite do, and that was going cross-country skiing, uh-huh. going skate skiing. Skate skiing. So, it has resorted to that. How did it go for you? Um, One, I absolutely kicked my own ass, that's for sure. That is a really difficult sport. And I also think it's way, way more difficult in technique and form than I ever could have imagined. And uh, the the technique to it, I think I was just flailing around for the hour that I was out there. Um, definitely fell within the first 100 yards of the lodge, which is a great feeling oh, to, perfect. to do. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, managed to like escape out into the woods as quick as possible so I could uh, kind of escape from more scorn from the real cross-country skiers. And then tried to figure it out on my own and had like maybe like two skates where I was like, oh, I think that's how it's supposed to feel. And then proceed to mess that up and not be able to do it anymore. But yeah, man, what a difficult sport. Like you, I've just gassed at the end of it so yeah that was awesome i saw that you were doing that cross-country skiers are just forces of nature they're nuclear reactors like with legs and arms yeah one of the craziest stories of this year has been cross-country skiing and jesse diggins the first american to one only lead the world cup but she won the the tour to ski which is like a tour de france style uh cross-country ski race and just i mean that's been really rad to kind of follow and see that we have this uh american kind of for the first time in the history of cross-country skiing like winning events and being at the top it's it's been really rad to see so there is i guess cross-country skiing is at the forefront right now here's to cross-country skiing Okay, well, let's get to some of the news of the day. We've got some really interesting stuff to talk about this week. And so I think the first thing we wanted to start with was this winter summit of K2. Yeah, the winter K2 summit. So the last summit that's an 8,000 meter peak to be climbed in winter was just finally climbed this winter. Um, There's a lot of kind of media around the attempt this year, specifically because the winter attempt had as many people as there are at the base camp and attempting it as there are in a normal spring climbing season, which was just absolutely absurd. You had people, you had that guided groups going for a winter summit, which is just asinine. And then kind of there's like social media influencers like Colin O'Brady, who's kind of this guy of, of lore who maybe have feigned some of his accomplishments, but has never climbed over 8,000 meters going for it. So definitely doing it strictly for the um, 
the notoriety. Um, but then you did who ended up prevailing and summiting was, uh, two teams, uh, all Sherpas going to the summit, which was one incredibly cool. Um, and two is starting to cement one of the team leaders, Nims Persia, as pretty much one of the greatest alpinists of all time. So, um, huge, huge, huge accomplishment. And I think it's one of those things like, High altitude climbing is really hard to understand unless you've been there and been to altitude. So, and then knowing like some of the the factors that like in winter and cold air, the elevation is essentially increased because the oxygen levels are decreased with, with cold temperatures. Um, so to just, it makes it even that much harder, but I think it's up until the point where you've ever been above like, let's say 18,000 feet. It's really hard to understand just like how gnarly hard something like this is. What's the highest you've personally been to date? To date, 20,300. So um, that's, that's the highest. It was uh, when I went to the Himalaya, we, you know, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to get over the the summit of Denali, which is was my highest point to that point, which is 20,000 feet, 300. But I ended up getting very sick and getting pretty much HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema, and really couldn't go above 20,000. I got to, got to about like 20,100, and that was about it, and I had to turn around. So, so yeah, still to this date, I mean, 20,000 in the Himalaya is pretty much like base camp, <laughs> where uh, it's the summit of Denali. Uh, but that's one of those things factoring into this like winter summit, like when it comes to high altitude climbing, uh, the more north you are, the more closely you are to poles, so actually north or south, the more exaggerated the altitude essentially feels by the fact that there is less oxygen at the poles compared to near the equator. Um, there's a greater concentration of, of oxygen the closer you get to the equator. So a lot of people say that the summit of Denali at 20,000 in the Himalaya can be equivalent to anywhere between 21,000 to 23,000 feet, depending on conditions. So um, that again kind of factors in the 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 summit of K2 in winter, um, where it stands at 28,000 feet, could kind of feel with the conditions more in the like 29,000 to almost 30,000 style feet. So um, this summit, I mean, yeah, pretty incredible. And I think the most incredible factor is an all Sherpa team, and they are getting all the recognition kind of for the for the first time in history. I mean, it's you know, it's definitely always. Uh, foreign, white, wealthier climbers that utilize the incredible capabilities of Sherpas and the incredible hard work of carrying camps up and setting up camps before the, the main climber gets to camp, uh, fixing lines for fixed ropes to climb up. And not only did the, the Sherpa team um, led by NIMS set all their camps and do all that work themselves, they also all summited. And one of the cooler things was too, is that uh, I don't know who was leading, who was at the, the closest, but about 70 meters from the summit, whoever was leading waited for all 13 people that were climbing that day to 
gather together so they could all summit together, which just kind of speaks to the camaraderie and kind of what it meant to this group that it wasn't about the individual climber. It was about them all summiting. So um, definitely a kind of a new, a new era, I would say for, for Sherpa climbing. The fact that Nims, who he was the guy that summited all 14 8,000 meter peaks in seven months. The previous record was seven years. <laughs> it's just unreal. To, and doing it all without oxygen. Like, just, I, I, it can't understate how gnarly, hard, and physically taxing that is. And the fact that he just did that. And then, well, let's just go tag Winter K2 Summit as well. This guy is unreal. I mean, he's, yeah, unreal athlete. It's great. It's such a great story and yeah, massive congratulations to the to the team. It's really really cool. Totally. We might be exercising the biggest swerve in the history of topics uh-huh. because we're going to go from that to talking about this collab between the North Face and Gucci. Honestly, when I first saw this, I had this very visceral reaction of like, "Oh hell no." Like what is happening to the world? And then I kind of like, it was one of those things that I just, it kind of kept popping up in my mind. And the more I thought about it, I started veering a bit away from my initial oh hell no reaction. And then it became like a really intriguing thing to me. And then it went to like, I can't wait to talk to Cody about this. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so my initial reaction, I'll tell you my, my gut feeling right off the bat, I saw it. I was kind of like, you just like kind of question and like wins back like what north face and the yeah. gucci and and i started thinking about it and it's like i i'm a personal big fan of north face i think they're like what they've done for outdoor sports mountain sports for the things that they've the, the athletes they support the products they make the environmentalism they support they're like a really good giant company like they're huge but they've done a lot of amazing things and then i started thinking about the north face gucci collab and then you kind of put it in the context of you know vf corporation which is the owner of uh, north face buying supreme and kind of like oh this reach out to streetwear and then all of a sudden this like deep visceral my punk rock roots of like growing up listening to punk rock kind of rebelling against all kinds of things like this i just was like you know what fuck this i was like i hate luxury brands i do not understand luxury brands like i don't get like to me they serve a purpose only for flaunting your wealth um maybe it's because i don't live in a city and don't understand if they make better products or whatever but to me it's just like you slap a bunch of logos on it and then you make the 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 price nine hundred dollars and then people want to buy it Mm -hmm. so i was kind of starting to think of this like why are we like why is someone like North Face, who's renowned for the outdoors and making high quality gear, partnering with someone that's just about like flaunting wealth? And that's where I started to be like, yeah, I don't, I'm not that into it. And then I realized I like looked into it a little bit more. Even more than that, it is uh, these items are only available in very exclusive, limited run in store. You can't buy these otherwise than booking an appointment at a North Face Gucci store 
and then going in and buying this. And I was just like, I don't know. It just kind of has this commercialism aspect to it that I'm, I, I don't really like for the outdoors. And this is coming from a guy that will spend a lot of gear, money on high quality gear, you know, being like our sport, the the sport itself is very expensive. So it's like hard to talk about being like, oh, the expensive products that are just for the city. And you're like, well, I, I always try and justify it. I was like, yeah, but this gear is built and is expensive for a function. I'm not buying it because of its uh, brand reputation. I'm buying it because it's like going to serve a purpose. And that's where I look at something like with Gucci and I'm kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, does this fit the outdoors? Does this fit what we do? So what, what was your, what could you not wait to talk about me with? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in life it's, maybe a good rule in general that when you have that, you know, really strong initial visceral reaction and, and maybe when you have the really strong visceral reaction in a positive way, i.e., I don't know, Ted Lasso, just go ahead and stick with that, you know, and just celebrate nice things in the world. But when you have the really visceral reaction of like, that's the worst thing of all time that I've ever seen, I think those are good moments for all of us to like hit the pause button and try to think a little more reflectively about like, maybe I'm missing something here. Because let's be honest, most of the time, I'm missing something here, right? And so I just think it's a good exercise and like a good intellectual exercise in general to be like, all right, let's consider the other side or other angles that you probably failed to consider in that instant reaction that happened in two seconds, right? And as I started thinking through it, and I think I, you know, I probably share a lot of the same concerns and questions that you just articulated well, but I found myself coming back to this idea that, again, we like to talk about the term inclusivity and making the outdoors more inclusive. And what I'm real committed to trying to do is not just throw that word around. Like just by saying it, I've done my job. I've ticked that like progressive box and now I can go back to just doing whatever the hell I was doing previously. Like I hate that. And I frankly hate people on social media who act that way, right? It's like, I've said the buzzword, I checked the box, I'm in the club and now I don't actually do anything different than what I was doing before, right? So to me, the term inclusivity, it goes kind of hand in hand with accessibility and that's for all types. And we're thinking about that on the one hand in terms of, of ethnicity and creating an outdoors environment in these sports we love of skiing and mountain biking or whatever. Let's open this up. Let's reduce friction for people who don't look exactly like me or you. On a different front, I want to make things more accessible to people who are just newbies coming into this sport or have never considered it. That's a different type of ex inclusivity, right? And what I started wondering about with this collab is, well, is this actually an interesting way to get that fashion interested community or that fashion, that high fashion interested person, maybe precisely the kind of person that you and I don't hang out with all the time, right? Because we don't really care if our handbag says Louis Vuitton or something, 
But could this be a new inroads into this kind of outdoor space? And again, I am absolutely happy to, for you or anybody listening to this to be like, yeah, no, that's dumb. Okay, like maybe, right? But that's the thing that I started wondering about. And if this is about reducing friction, smoothing out inroads to different people, that's the thing that hung me up the most. And I could be way off base. And this could be just absolutely not about that whatsoever. But that's the thing that gave me pause. Yeah, no, and that it brings up a good point. Like you're kind of appealing to... Uh, a more urban demographic and it's like, hey, come to the outdoors because we're reaching out to you. Is that best done through a luxury brand? I don't know because I'm all, I, that's not my world and lifestyle. It does bring up this, I remember reading this New Yorker article about the CEO, Marco Bizzari, um, who's like a new CEO and he kind of turned Gucci on its head being Gucci was a very uh, exclusive brand and they in tried to actually make it with intention about three years ago, very inclusive. And a major point of it was lowering prices on certain products, at, uh, adding in entry points, which is where like the Gucci belt came in. And it's still, it's a $300 belt, which is insane, but it was like the cheapest product and accessory that Gucci had ever made. Whereas their old guard was very guarded about uh, letting people without wealth access their products. Um, they also, before any global movements and Black Lives Matter movement, brought in um, uh, like a CEO of inclusivity for their brand. And they were trying to be very inclusive as a brand and reach out to multiple different demographics across the world. So it does bring that up. And maybe Gucci is the right brand for North Face because of their uh, recent history. Again, like I'm still kind of like, I guess my roots being of looking at luxury brands as just purely flaunting capitalistic wealth that I just am still kind of rebel against it. And maybe it's just like, yeah, maybe that's not for me, but maybe this does something. I mean, the same time, like North Face has had pretty urban appeal for a long time. Like we're talking about Gucci, like maybe it's been Scott Schmidt the whole time because supposedly Steep Tech has been popular in like some super core like urban rap culture for like decades or it was like 20 years ago. Like you read articles about like Steep Tech jackets that were obviously designed originally by Scott Schmidt being incredibly popular. Did that do much for anything other than North Face? I don't know. But, you know, there, there is something to be said there. So I, I do like your thoughts of always looking at something and instead of just like rebelling immediately, like, hey, like what else is, what is the secondary aspect of this that I'm not seeing? So it is interesting. I will say that like videos were pretty pretty interesting right off the bat um they're, you're like whoa like it's got a cool like 70s sort of style but yeah no it's it's definitely they it they're blowing it up on their marketing channels and throwing it everywhere because it is it is pretty shocking to see uh, an outdoor brand collaborating with a luxury urban brand yeah and i don't have a final thought or punchline to this, no. but I, I thought it would be interesting to kind of raise the question. And so everybody can 
as Soren Kierkegaard liked to say, go judge for yourself. So anyway. Totally. Um, and then the, speaking of wealth and mountain towns, that brings us into our next article, um, which is something that's a little more uh, near and dear to your heart because it takes place in your backyard. Um, and this is from the High Country News. So if you people are unfamiliar with High Country News, they're pretty good little like, I don't even know how you call it, regional like news magazine kind of they just do some they do some interesting pieces and this piece was uh entitled uh when covid hit colorado county kicked out second homeowners and they hit back it's an incredibly long article done by nick bolin and um it goes into what I found to be a pretty interesting topic, and it's like a topic of of mountain towns today, but kind of presented in an absolutely new way, which was that when coronavirus hit Colorado and uh, a lot of mountain towns, and specifically Crested Butte, pretty much told all second homeowners, which is generally wealthy second homeowners, that don't come to Crested Butte and created uh, what a order um i don't know exactly how how they said it how they did it and created orders like you're not allowed uh, or welcome in our town and then it ticked off pretty much a, a saga that probably is still going on i don't know what was your quick take and then we can go a little more in depth on it yeah i mean couple things i think that this is one of those times where man talk about getting your wording and communication right the first time when we're wading into like really important and significant waters this is a this is a lesson on that you know and there clearly was a good intention behind this initial communication and that like as the world was freaking out right with covid and blowing up like a lot of communities some of the leadership went to like, we have got to protect the community. And that means like, if you aren't presently here and going to be staying here, like they were just trying to create a lockdown environment. And there was an initial communication that went out that everyone involved with that initial communication has subsequently said, we messed this up. We messed this up. They, they've owned that. They've acknowledged that. And they did mess it up. And understandably, it angered some of the second homeowners here. Second homeowners that exist in every single mountain town, pretty much in the world, I would say, right? It was really unfortunate. Everyone that I know that was involved with that initial communication is like, we didn't get this right. And we were really sorry and we apologize. So there was fallout, right? And it kicked off a really strong response by certain individuals. And the article then kind of goes through and explains some of that. Where exactly things are right now, I, I couldn't say. I don't know those second homeowners personally. Overall, I feel like we're in a good spot here as a community Anyway, I'll let you go back, but that's kind of my not that quick take of mm -hmm. what, what sort of happened here. Yeah, I actually even find it too. It's like the reaction to it was different because we in Tahoe had a similar thing happen. It was March 15th when kind of the world got locked down. Um, it was pretty much told everyone's a stay-at-home order. 
And we in Tahoe just saw Tahoe get absolutely flooded with people. And it got really tense because we all started, we all all of a sudden understood how many ICU beds are in our local area, which there is one. (laughs) We had one ventilator and one ICU bed, and then you get the town flooded. And I mean, truth be told, like, we had a massive spike right after that. I had a group of friends that uh, they that like came up from the Bay Area to a house. They ended up like being in the house with other people. One of the people that came up from the Bay Area ended up having coronavirus and it spread throughout that that little house. And since people weren't quite wearing masks, you know, they went outside and then it started spreading a little bit. So there was like truth to the fact that like, a bunch of people brought coronavirus into our little town and it put us in a really bad place. Um, so they did, the, our local government put out an order saying like, if you're a second homeowner, please go home. Like we just, it wasn't in the way that I think it was worded there maybe. And that's where it ticked us off. It's like, you're not welcome. It was just kind of like, can you please just go home? We can't handle a capacity if this is to go, go crazy in our local area. And for the most part, there wasn't a pushback. And what I saw in this, which was really interesting, was that there was legit pushback to the point where the second homeowners got very involved in local politics for the first time. And I would say a lot of second homeowners aren't involved in local politics. They they're, they are at their, in their primary residence. It's like they're usually it's their vacation home. And to see it go to this kind of public polit- political fight that in many ways can divide a town is been really interesting to play out. Um, it reminds me of the book Billionaire Wilderness, which I recently read, um, and just talks about the kind of the local political and local community aspects of wealth within the wealthiest uh, county in North America, being Jackson County. Um, and it kind of seemed like this, but in a, an even more different way because. Generally, even in Jackson, they're not involved in kind of local politics, it, you know, involved in charities, involved in giving and involved in kind of community events, but like not in this sort of way. So it was pretty interesting to see like what happens when maybe like the wealthy second homeowners take over the politics of a, of a small mountain town and what that can be had. And, you know, we all know living in mountain towns is always, no matter what, going to be a rivalry between out-of-towners, <laughs> non-locals, and locals. It's just going to be present forever, even though we all very much understand, like, we rely on them for our yep. survival. So there's there's a balance, and there's always a balance. And this balance seems pretty pretty out of whack in Crested Butte, kind of maybe right now. And this is probably why you're a little guarded uh, over almost talking about this. Well, and I'm part of the reason I'm guarded is I think you should always be guarded when you're not totally informed and up to date exactly with. So to be clear, like I, I am not like on top of the dynamics. I don't, I don't know how anyone actually could be on top of all of the dynamics here. One of the things that's fascinating about, I think probably again, all small mountain towns are just the complexities of the community dynamics. There are people that have lived here for a long time. There are people that have moved here more recently. There are visitors coming in. There are second homeowners. And I've kind of find that like it's frankly just a little microcosm for all the big macro conversations we've been having about like national politics. And again, what it what it means, you know, the conversation I had with 
Jeremy Jones, you know, about his film Purple Mountain. Like, we have got to be good at talking with each other. We have got to, anytime we are coming into a community, be thinking about the well-being of that community. And like, that's just simply got to be part of what it means to be a good citizen and a good person. You know, I don't think any of those things are simple and how that exactly get hashes out. I don't know that there's an algorithm for that, but on the one hand, there are complexities in what we're talking about. But on the other hand, this is just simply part of what it means to like be a citizen of any community and a citizen of the world, etc. And we all better keep trying to get better and better at being that. I totally agree with you. And I think it's just, it is like local politics obviously is really important and it reflects on what's going on in the the larger national scale. And it totally, I mean, these are the issues that are in the forefront of like wealth divide of, of living costs of healthcare, all these things into one little tiny mountain community and how one it's just, then it becomes face to face, except for the fact that it's, this stuff was playing out on Facebook, which is definitely not a great place for uh, discussion to be had. It obviously, it tends to divide people and put them in corners as opposed to communicate with people. So it would be interesting in a non-pandemic world to have more of the community involved in town halls, town like having these uh, wealthy second homeowners in community meetings in front of people that are, you know, representative of the service industry that is completely reliant on those out-of-town wealth coming into the town, but also has different needs and wants than them. And so having to be able to talk in person about it is probably going to be the only solution to that. Unfortunately, we can't even do that right now. And I think these issues are becoming more magnified and more extremist in position because of the fact that it's playing out on social media and we're all just doing it while living in our homes by ourselves. Let's get past COVID. Yeah. That's a th- that's a, I just had an idea, Cody. Yeah. How how about we just get past this? Yeah, that that's kind of what I hope for. That's the main thing. Maybe just if we can get rid of a, a global virus pandemic, then things will get a yeah. little bit better. I, and I would imagine the, the, they'll get just a tad bit better. Hmm. This is this is why we get paid the big bucks for this kind of brain power that we're bringing to important topics. Like you heard it here first. Cody and I think we should get past the pandemic and things might get a little better. Hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is definitely why we are the forefront leaders of thought. <laughs> yes. <laughs> get yeah. rid of the virus. Things will be yes. better. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Cool. All right. This will be fun. Our next topic, some of you may have listened to my podcast conversation with Sam Antimatin. It was a really fun conversation. Sam is a total badass and a great guy. But at the end of our conversation, we started talking about bindings. And we started talking about the cast binding system, and we started talking about the shift binding. And you may have heard me say to Sam, huh, Sounds like we might need to get, you know, you and Cody together, Sam, kind of duking it out here. So you should listen to that conversation if you haven't already. So we got done with that. And then actually, as I started thinking about what Sam was actually saying, I found myself being like, I actually really agree with what Sam was saying, 
But once again, I was like, boy, I can't wait to ask Cody about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Cody, you've, I think, You've had a chance to listen to that conversation, right? Yeah, I did. And so to like sum it up, essentially, if, you know, one, listen to the pod, but if you haven't, and to brief you into this conversation, what he says for what him and Jeremy Heights do, he's had people at Solomon and binding engineers tell him like, no, the shift is not for you. And that's why he's on the cast system. Um, and that's why he's said the most shocking thing to me, which he was climbing Pakistani peaks in race boots, <laughs> going to 6,000 meters. I'm like, what? You're doing that in race boots? And so it sounds like, whoa, so should I not trust the shift? And like maybe get Cody on here to like push back on what Sam uh, not trusting shift to do what he does. And the funny thing is, actually, I completely agree with him because Sam and Jeremy are doing what no one else in the world is doing. They are skiing massive, steep icy gnarly lines like these faces that are are literally ice walls covered in three inches of snow and uh, you know these faces like the bright horn which have been skied in you know ten thousand hop turns to get to the bottom and they're doing it in eight turns at 65 miles an hour it's nuts what they're doing like this is the type of skiing that I'm not doing that no other pro skier in the world is doing that. It's only like a collection of two people in the world are doing right now. It's Sam and Jeremy. And so in that point, like what they're doing, like if you fall, it's game over at all. You need a 100% trust that you're not going in your gear and you're not going to pop out of your skis. And the whole thing with, uh, uh, with a shift binding is that, it's uh, alpine touring binding that is safer because it can release. And the DIN setting goes up to 13 on it. So for 99% of people, including myself, that works great, DIN 13. But for them, you want to be something that is almost like full metal race quality kind of binding. And that is being a cast system, being in you're on a full alpine 16 din uh, they might even be on the 18 din setup and so for that like i would say i would almost push back against their their saying like don't go to tech bindings like i don't know for me you can lock out your heel um 100 and you can lock out your toe so it's an equivalent of like din 30 and your ski is never coming off and that's almost even better than using an alpine binding sam says he doesn't like the feel of it which i can totally understand uh you have no elasticity in bindings we talked about that on gear 30 so you don't get quite that edge hold that you do with the, a little bit of elasticity of the of the, the look pivot um even though the look pivot has very little elasticity to it but to me it like it makes sense and like as he said and then he's like yeah i i i've used this shift on other skis and i put it on my like girlfriend and my mom skis it like it's a good binding like you could tell he's like no i'm a fan of the binding but for what he's doing <laughs> which is just like unbelievably nuts you're like yeah i i would probably be doing the same thing i would be probably trying to ski on the uh sth2 or even maybe the full race binding because i want the most high performance binding you could ever create to do what you do so that i i, I kind of agree with them i think it's funny too like in the if you go listen to it i mean sam is talking in a 
you know, he's he's not getting all fired up. It's a pretty like, you know, level tone as he's talking about these things. And I think it can it's this is another good like rule of life. Like always think about who the speaker is that is making a statement. And I think that, you know, we've kind of talked about like it's a thing, you know, sort of in the ski world or snowboard world or whatever. It's like, oh, so-and-so is on that ski. I should get that ski too, right? But if this, it's like before everybody goes keyboard warrior and is like, oh, well, Sam says like, we probably shouldn't be on this piece of equipment. It's like, keep in mind, you're not Sam. You're not close to Sam. There, like you said, there's two people in the world. We're talking about a very specific application. And if you get it twisted and you're like, well, if it's not good enough for Sam, it's definitely not good enough for me. It's like, you've made so many category mistakes. You need to take it down a notch. And again, just get back to like, what do you do? How do you ski? Where do you ski? And um, let's let Sam and Jeremy be Sam and Jeremy. Exactly. No, it'd be like if a Formula One driver, it was like Lewis Hamilton was like saying like, you know, that uh, liquid cooled V12 engine isn't quite for me. I've been going the the V16 for my F1 car. And like, I don't know anything about cars, if anyone knows this. And then you're like, yeah, I'm not going to get that Bugatti with the V12. I'm going to go try and buy that Formula One car with the freaking V16. You're like, no, no, no. That Those are only on tracks on Formula One cars. Like, you do not need this for your everyday lifestyle. So exactly that. Um, there is uh, Their choice of reflection has no reflection on nine, like the other 7 billion people outside of Sam and Jeremy. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was a good conversation. I will say, like Sam is, uh, I love that guy, and I think he's an amazing dude. I've stayed at his house in uh, in Zermatt, got to ski with him a bunch over time. He's as good in the mountains as anyone as I know, and he's very focused on gear. So I was like, when he said that, I'm like, yeah, makes sense. I mean, you sent me it, but like, oh, what are you gonna say? And I like, I was like, yeah make make sense so um no, that was it that was a great conversation i definitely think you, everyone should listen to it i mean cody mostly my role here is just to try to stir shit up yeah. among various people so you know i, I tried yeah but uh i failed so uh, next time yeah. next time well like you said you you were you know the the last topic it's like come at it wait what's the secondary thing my first reaction oh someone said something bad about the shift well that's my baby that's what i designed and then you're like well no the secondary aspect of this is it's for Sam and Jeremy. So, so it makes sense to me. Um, and speaking of kind of Europe um, and he gave, he gave the update in the pod about like the state of European skiing and coronavirus. Um, and the, the next topic we talk about was a topic that I got direct from the source of my uh, French team manager at Solomon. We were talking the other day and um, there's an article in, uh, was it Planet Ski, I want to say. Um, but there's an announcement in France that they've got another month of ski areas not opening. Um, as Sam said, Italy's completely closed. No ski areas open there. Austria, I'm not entirely sure, but it sounds like the locals are able to ski a little bit at ski resorts, and but outsiders are not. So what I've been hearing is actually like unbelievable conditions for these locals that are like 
getting to ski and it's been dumping there. So they're just like skiing ski resorts, like they're their own private ski resorts, which is insane. But in France, they shut down for another month. And my team manager is like, I don't think it's going to open the rest of the year, which really puts the ski industry in a hard spot because of the fact that 50% of the the market is in Europe and a few of the major countries are completely closing down. I mean, one huge bummer. I mean, ski resorts are not open. I think all of us in North America, with ski resorts are opening are just like, feel so relieved compared to our lockdown. <laughs> yeah, just the fact that they're open as amazing the fact that we could just get to go skiing whereas like last spring most people were harping on anyone to go in backcountry skiing because of the state of the world at that point so the fact that they're open is amazing and then this kind of rolls into blevin's corner which was that really interesting uh piece that he put out which was climbing coronavirus cases in colorado's high country aren't tracking back to ski resorts so pretty divergent from what France is actually doing right now. Yeah, for sure. And I frankly don't, you know, while I am smart enough to come up with, a, you know, with the idea that if we should just get past COVID and then the world would be a little better, I'm afraid I am not smart enough to know why it is so different, say, in France versus what we're doing here as somebody who lives across the street from a ski area and is there a lot and just is with my own eyes kind of trying to monitor how things are going, it seems like this has been going really well. And then it was interesting to read Jason's article kind of backing up what anecdotally seemed to me to be the case. So I guess I'm not, I don't understand. I, I'm not smart enough to know all the geopolitical reasons for why different countries have to lock down or if it really isn't a have to just certain folks in leadership positions are making it so i i don't know but i i'll just we've been talking a lot about this obviously this season on various podcasts as you just said like i'm just personally super grateful that what we are able to be doing right now and this is why we keep banging that drum of like we just need everybody to be acting responsibly. And and again, the thing I keep thinking about, this is exactly what we talk about every single time you go backcountry skiing. It's not like you get to ever go on the backcountry tour where it's like, well, today we just don't need to think about anything. For those of us who go into the backcountry, like you don't get to do any tours where you just are mindless and maybe you have four drinks and you're hammered and you're never thinking about what time of day is it or what the snowpack is like and what terrain should we be skiing. I feel like we're bringing more of a responsibility code now in bounds. And not just while we're skiing and riding chairs, but like what does Apre look like? I don't know if that resonates at all with you or if that's a weird or dumb take. But. No, it, it does. Because, I mean, I'm in the same boat. Like, I I hate that always, like, that feeling that people do. Was like, oh, government's stupid. What are they doing? Like, I could, if I just could you know, just do this and they're fine. You're like, it's so much more complex than that. Always. Like, it's even just, like, the argument for, like, 
things as broad as like uh, Medicare for all. You're like, well, there's some implications to that that are unforeseen that are going to create some huge problems, even though I'm a big supporter of it. The same goes for something like coronavirus and shutting down a whole country to something like skiing. I don't quite understand the rationale for it. I, from the outside, I look at articles like Blevin says, which they look into the the tracking of coronavirus and they're not connecting it to ski resorts, which is amazing because last year we all knew that ski resorts were a hotspot from austria to uh, colorado to sun valley they traced a ton of spread of coronavirus to ski areas makes sense like people coming in from all over going into lodges being in confined spaces breathing on each other and then just going back to their hometowns so to now see data showing that like they're doing it right and this is not connecting to ski resorts is like one it's a huge sigh of relief because i've always thought this 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 season was hanging on by a dear thread the entire time and one one little spot let's say Vale had an outbreak the rest of the country is going to be like cool we're shut down you know like those kind of things could happen so to see that they're doing things correctly that like wearing masks and lift lines and being like apart from each other in lift lines and not going into ski areas. And what you said, bringing this like responsibility code to the ski area is actually working. It's like kind of makes me, you know, it's the opposite of like, this is why we can't have nice things. It's like, right. This is why we can have yes. nice things. Um, Cause we're acting responsibly. So I was really happy to read that article because I was wondering when and who was tracking this, who was studying this, how this was going to be perceived. Because the first data points that come out showing connection, it's going to be uh, another lost season. So with I, I kind of just feel bad for for France and for French skiers. Um, it sounds like Rondonet is absolutely blowing up. Like um, my team manager is saying like, he's the most popular guy at Solomon right now. Cause he's got the, he's got the key to all the products there. And so everyone's just trying to hit him up for new touring gear and stuff. And like people are at least allowed to get outside and they're just touring up the, up what would be the piece and uh, like touring's exploding. But the fact that like, one, there's some data showing that we can do it appropriately and we can ski appropriately and not have these places turn to hotspots, but then have ski areas still closed. It's, it's a bummer. Again, the, you know, in in France and Europe, it's kind of different in that like not everyone's just driving from their home to a massive parking lot at the base of a ski area and then just going skiing with a, a packed lunch. Like their culture is a little bit more about like, staying in like pretty crowded hotels at the base and then going up, uh, you know, going up the ski area and getting lunch at uh, spots. And so I could see like, maybe there's some complexity there that the government is factoring in where they're like, we just don't see how people could actually physically do this because it's not the culture of skiing. Whereas us, it's the culture of skiing. We're like, yeah, we drive, have these massive parking lots. We drive separately and we all just uh, camp out in our cars and go make some turns and go back to our cars. So that doesn't exist in Europe. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see how everyone's handling it. Yeah. I just come back to like, we're all navigating this world, but feels like we just keep talking about a lot of complexities and complex dynamics and pretty much everything we've talked about today. There are things like just these different verticals of concern, right? And there are economic 
verticals of concern. Those are real. And I don't, it's like, I find myself like, you know, if on the, on the one end of the spectrum where it's like COVID is a hoax, this is a conspiracy. I'm like, wow, what are you doing? Like, I don't, I'm not there whatsoever, but on the kind of opposite end of the spectrum for people who are just like, we need to lock everything down always. And maybe we'll emerge from our homes in three years. I don't really resonate with that one either because I'm like, man, to every bar owner and restaurant owner and everybody else who is like hanging on by a thread, like I really feel for, I really feel for these people and these businesses and the rest. And I'm like, again, like we, our brains have to be able to handle more than just black or white, right or wrong, like expanding this sphere of concerns to what's good for a local economy, what's good for people's mental health, what's good for economies and businesses. And, you know, like there's a lot of stuff here. And I just, when people start coming real strong on sort of either end of the spectrum and they're getting loud and it seems to be very much one focus, I stop, I kind of drop out and I'm like, that doesn't resonate with how I'm seeing the world right now. Yeah, I think everyone tends to focus on the most extreme arguments from either side. Um, and that always sucks because you're, you're what you just presented of being like, it's a hoax is what quite often the people that are thinking about this rationally look at as the only argument against it. And you're like, no, there's a lot of arguments to be said that is like, no, we need to kind of figure out some way to kind of keep some stuff open and do this in a safe way. It's kind of like, it's almost the argument in backcountry skiing. Like if people would look at it and be like, Hey, that's dangerous. Just don't go into the backcountry. You're that's like, right. you're like, right. well, yeah, like totally. Like that makes sense. Like you could die out there. Don't do it. And you're like, yeah, but like we can take skills and responsibility and navigation. Sure. We're still taking risk, but we can get to a place where we can backcountry ski what we think to be safely. Sure. Is it more risky than sitting indoors? Of course, but we're going to go backcountry skiing and accept those risks. The same sort of thing can be said for like people that just want full hundred percent lockdowns, like full, just like don't open anything and just stay inside. You're like, that's not good for us. Like we have to be able to take a little bit more risk, go outside, do things like skiing, uh, which seems like what you're going into a place with people in line and you're around people. You're like, yeah, but we're doing it. Of course, that's more risky than just sitting inside by yourself. But it is proving to be a pretty safe way to get outdoors. Um, You know, I read it yesterday, someone saying on uh, Twitter that they like, they've not gone outside their house for the last like, year practically and they've done rare walks and somehow they ended up getting coronavirus and they were like so bummed and you're like yeah that's horrible to throw like your life entirely away for this and then still end up getting it you know and i'm not saying we take this seriously like i think all of us that are like know the danger of this and want it to go away know that like we we have to take this seriously so what i will just kind of wrap it up with is it's just nice that we have skiing for us skiers and that ski areas are not are operating in North America in a safe way. And we're not connecting it back to super spreader events. So for us, yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, I was on an interview recently. I was like, it's just so good for people to be able to go do something. And being that we can go to a ski area and go skiing, 
oh, what a breath of fresh air, like literally. <laughs> and so seriously, like, thank you to the people running these ski areas. Thank you to the lifties. Like really thank you to everybody involved with keeping these areas open. And again, to all of us going to these places, man, we got a new responsibility code like we have never had before. And don't ruin this. You know, don't ruin this. Like that, that's our part of this. Let's keep this going. And because again, I mean, Luke Hopp and I keep talking about it on Gear 30 episodes, like the mental health benefits of this, we're feeling palpably. And we just want as many people as possible to have that same opportunity. Totally. So yeah, exactly. Same. And, you know, again, we tend to focus on the few people and the few stories like uh, Schweitzer that recently just like took away like night skiing or what they call like twilight skiing because of people uh, not wearing masks and being abusive to their staff. And the, the CEO came out with like this really strong worded that is just like, we will not take this. And we tend to like that draws our attention and that draws our excitement. And but that's been, I'd say, pretty localized. And it's maybe a product of their environment of being in northern Idaho here. Here, I mean, I you go to Squaw and it is just like everyone's got a mask on. And if their nose dips out, people will be like, hey, put your mask on. They're like, oh, sorry, and put it up. And it's just been like really cool to see that like 99.9% of people are doing it and doing it safely. And it goes back to like, this is why we can have nice things when we act appropriately. So it's good, good to see. Feel bad for my, my French fellows. Um, I see a lot of them shipping off to going into switzerland hanging out there which creates a whole different set of issues but <laughs> but yeah so uh the fact that they're closed down I feel bad for them so and speaking of closed down i guess we can kind of wrap it up with our media recommendations because uh, we most part are still you know not doing much so other than watching tv and reading books and not having parties and going out to restaurants and bars so a lot of time for that yeah well some of us though cody are planning events. That's right. So I have media recommendations. You don't because we're talking about coronavirus. You're being, you're planning an event, blister summit during the pandemic. So how was, how has that been? <laughs> it's been very interesting, very difficult, and really just following on the heels of everything we just said. I mean, I have spent now easily over 2000 hours since the start of this year, like working on this thing, talking with health professionals from around the country, we're going forward with this thing. And this is, um, you know, we're talking about this responsibility code and the rest. And this is us in a way, putting our money where our mouth is, you know, we're putting on this blister summit. Uh, it's scheduled for February 18th. It's going to be like the world's first ever consumer-focused ski test where we're going to be collecting like the the feedback on a bunch of like inline, you know, current skis and a lot of next year's skis. And people are used to reading our 5,000, 6,000 word reviews on stuff, but this was a cool opportunity to kind of open this up and kind of get some consensus opinions from, you know, the public, passionate skiers. So it's been insane. You know, so, so much of my life this uh, over the past 12 months has been working on this. Can we do this? Should we do this, etc.? It all for us really comes back to, I started using this term in this conversation. I have not been using this, but this like responsibility code 
again, I'm I'm not interested in making some sort of political statement or stance on this. I'm interested in like really trying to get into like what is is there a medical consensus? So I've spoken with probably 25 ER doctors, people working in ER rooms around the country and getting their take on what's going on, explaining to them how we are setting up this blister summit, how we have modified it. And every single one of those ER docs, and then there's other PAs and other people in the medical professions I've spoken with, every single one of them has said, do this event. I'm not lying. And like if 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 half of them were like, dude, don't do this, I would have shut it down. The other thing we've done is we've been working very closely with public health officials in Gunnison County. There is nothing we would be doing here that that has not been signed off on by public health officials in our county. So to be clear, this is not something where we're like, screw COVID, we're tired of it. No, we're not going rogue on any of this. We're doing an event in a responsible way. And so sorry if I sound like I'm getting fired up, but like this is a whole lot of hours working on this. It is thinking through all the various elements that we just have been speaking of. I got to say, there have been a lot of Blister members that are like, thank you for doing this. There have been a lot of brands who are like, first of all, the idea for the Blister Summit is something that they've said like is really needed in like the snow sports world. And they're like, there's been a lot of people who are just like, thank you for going forward and making this happen. And, you know, some people that are like, yeah, we, we can't be there this year. And like, okay, that's okay. Like, you know, we get it and that's cool. But for those of us who are um, ready to come do something that's going to be awesome and do it in a responsible way, here we go. So we, we ain't just talking about this stuff. Like we're, we're working on it, you know? Totally. And I think that's pretty, I think it's pretty cool. Like I, you know, regardless of you trying to throw an event during the pandemic, it's kind of like me probably can understand my take on it is like yeah there's a way to do it there's it's just like uh, restaurants adapting to outdoor seating like in which they were connecting with being safe so we, we have to adapt and we we as humans do adapt really well so the fact that you're adapting to it and making it happen is cool because i think that the, the idea of it's pretty genius and it thinks back to this uh this time when i was at a point where we were like 10 years ago with solomon and um, a bunch of the kind of the heads of the Alpine division came to me and they were like, in a certain way, kind of lost. They were like, what do we, what do we do? Ski sales weren't doing super well. Binding sales were kind of going down. Boot sales were going down. They're just like, where, where are we at? And I remember we went to, this was after SIA slash OR and we, um, we flew to Utah and we were doing some ski tests, but we were mainly just like talking. And they had like three days of just talking and skiing with the, the executives in the Alpine division. And I'll never forget, um, we were testing skis and we were testing all our competitor skis, like testing everything out. And we were at Alta and we skied down, I don't know, some upper bowl. It was a powder day and all our tracks were these like big GS super G turns down. And this was in an era that the uh, Rossignol S7 was super popular. And at that moment, I was on the S7s. And I remember skiing down after that lap being like, God, these skis are 
garbage. I cannot stand these skis. They like turn for you. I can't hold a line. It feels like the tail wants to wash out and they always just want to turn. And I looked up and I saw two skiers coming down, making like small little turns that just like milk in the powder. And they come out onto the flats and they ski by both on S sevens. And they were just grinning ear to ear. And I remember thinking, I was like, that's because this ski isn't built for me. The ski is built for them. And this ski is easy to ski. It makes turns for you. And they're having a blast because they don't have to put any energy into turning and making, uh, enjoying this powder run. For me, it took away the powder run. For them, it was like unbelievably perfect. And I remember thinking, I was like, this isn't necessarily always the best thing for us as professionals and even the top of the sport to be the ones creating the opinions on whether the ski is good or not. So having public input to help that I think is important because there's certain things I still see to this day. I'm like people that are not great skiers skiing on skis that are far exceed their abilities and then vice versa. Uh, like you're like, well, you should be on something better. And so like getting some consensus opinion from the public, I think is really important to understanding and uh, the ski industry, and also like how to build better skis, like how to classify and how to segment your ski categories, because um, there's skis that are just not built for me, but they're built and very popular for everyone else. Um, we were doing this in our boot test recently, and one of our uh, my fellow team members was like, this boot is garbage, and I hate it. And they were like, yeah, this is our number one selling boot right now, and people love it. <laughs> and you're like, oh because it works really well for other people. So um, I, so I applaud you for trying to do something like that. Well, thanks, man. It is going to be interesting. It is. But this then leads us to why I am afraid that I do not have so many media recommendations uh, this month because I barely sleep now. And that's going to probably be my life until we get through the blister summit. That's cool. We're excited about it. And it's a, it's a cool project. Um, and it's coming together nicely, I think. So I'm going to have to defer to you mostly this month, but I'm very curious. Tell us a little bit about what you've been reading or watching or listening to. Yeah. It's almost the opposite of last month where I was like, just so slammed with like trying to finally get out the mountain. Why, which was just like my entire life. And I was like, I don't have any media recommendations. I'm like, <laughs> I haven't done anything, but the mountain. Why? So, um, I've been finally able to kind of like sit back for the first time in a long time and, uh, you know, read some stuff. Um, yeah. So the book I'm, currently reading almost done with um which is just an amazing book is house of rain by craig childs and um it's a book about the disappearance of the anasazi um in the american southwest and this predates a lot of the the tribes that we know that were occupied the territory today being navajo ute um the anasazi there were a thousand years before them and it is a fascinating book mainly because you're looking at like what was like an, a, a civilization, one that nobody knows much about they and why they just disappeared, but two was so elevated that it could it's like rivals the the empires in terms of of the Egyptians and the Mayans when it came to their math abilities, their astrology abilities. Some of the like they're almost like built like Egyptian style pyramids, but they're not pyramids there. Their, their level of like, uh, of math skills and engineering skills that they had in the American Southwest that no one really knows about is just 
unbelievable. And it's this like civilization that few people know about and it took place in our backyard and it's so it's a really fascinating book like like i just found this one antidote interesting like they would build 100 mile straight roads that don't diverge a single inch and um that were aligned with like the stars and the sun and would go over mountain passes and not you know not waver in the slightest bit and like engineers comment like how impossibly hard that is to do without like incredible navigation skills incredible math skills so like this book has just been really fascinating to kind of see this like this empire that vanished overnight very few people know about and how they're trying to piece it all together and to uh learn the history of kind of the american southwest so i i recommend that book it's been great yeah i look forward to checking that out yeah what else you got TV show. Uh, I've gotten into uh, Dark, uh, the German show on Netflix. Yeah. Oh my God, is it intense? Like, if you wanted, I, I, it's not a good way to relax at the end of a day, that's for sure. <laughs> like, it is like you find yourself at points just like gripped for like an hour straight. Um, but it is an incredibly well done show. And as I've gotten into it, you're realizing it has these pretty elevated themes and scientific themes and really like uh, intelligent themes to it. Um, it's presented as essentially kind of this like, almost like sci-fi mystery um, and thriller. And then it goes kind of some pretty cool stuff related to mainly time travel and time. Um, so it's like, you're, it goes deep, but it is really, it is really well acted. It is really well written and it is intense. Like a uh, great show. How far are you uh, pretty much into it through uh, season one? And how, how many seasons are we at? Uh, three seasons. So, okay. um, like going through season one, I was kind of like, well, how do you continue with this? But I think they continue to like take it to some other places. And I always, you know, I'm a big, I prefer the like mini series, like, Hey, write it out for three seasons and then stop it. Don't do it. Like we saw that with like Westworld, which is, I'm a big fan of. And like, you get into season three and it's kind of like, you guys are just kind of writing right now. Like you didn't have a plan for this. I think when you wrote season one and so like, I hope they don't do that with this show as I get deeper into it, but um, you know, like, Oh, it's successful. So let's just kind of keep expanding this universe. Um, I prefer the breaking bad where like you're right. And there's a definite ending to it. So we'll see, but amazing show. If you want to be, I don't know, if you don't have enough intensity in your day and adrenaline, <laughs> watch dark. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I won't start that right now. I'm going to wait. <laughs> yeah, like I definitely find myself at times like, why am I watching this? This is so intense. And then it's like, does the, the you know, starting in 10 seconds, do you want to start? And I'm like, yeah, uh, we're doing it. that yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then uh, for the movie recommendation, um, this goes into my category of sports documentaries, which is just inject sports documentaries directly into my veins. Like I will watch any and all of them, but the, uh, you know, we've talked about Last Dance. We've talked about obviously uh, uh, Queen's Gambit. Um, so which you said was a sports documentary pretty much or I a did. sports show and the, but this one the the tiger documentary which um was put out on hbo this last two weeks two-part series um in full disclosure which maybe also is a humble brag it was uh, directed by a buddy of mine matt heineman um who's a skier himself diehard skier uh, quite a good skier too really amazing um 
Tiger is not necessarily as easy of a subject to cover. And I think sometimes in certain ways, not as interesting as someone like, um, you know, Michael Jordan and uh, maybe Diego Maradona, but they take it to some pretty interesting spots where what I really love about it is you, they do that really good thing, like a good documentarian or a good writer does where you go half, half of it. You're all of a sudden be like, this guy sucks. What a douche. And then you're like, Oh, I feel so bad for him. And he's mm-hmm. such a like, Oh God, I feel. And you like all of a sudden understand and, uh, and are empathetic with him. And then you go back to him like, Oh my God, what a douche. And this guy sucks. And then, you know, bringing you back and forth of showing like his flaws, but then feeling empathy for him is I think a really powerful thing to do. And, and, and I, you know, you ultimately walk away from it kind of almost in a certain way, like, we're confused but i think that's important because like we're humans and we're weird and we're different and i've always gone into the fact that the greatest of all time are strange beasts they are abnormal humans and to tell their story and to try and wrap it up into a nice little bow and like this is what this person is you can't really do that so just exploring all aspects of them i think is is a good way to to approach something that is as kind of deep as a subject is tiger yeah i can't wait to watch it and it is funny right so again i have not seen it yet but given some of the conversations you know that like when we were talking about the queen's gambit and genius and these obsessive personalities and this singularity of focus it's like boy these things sure all seem like those are not unrelated elements of tiger's life yeah and so it'll be fun to kind of i mean i i'm always in on that show me like the absolutely psychotic obsessive personality and i'm in like regardless of what it's about whether it's about chess or golf or basketball or anything and so i it'll be kind of fun i think with some of these with the jordan documentary with the queen's gambit it'll be interesting to kind of see if i feel like if the tiger documentary kind of falls in line with some of these other stories or where where it radically deviates and the rest so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it yeah totally i've been looking forward to this for a while i actually had dinner with matt and when he told me uh that he was doing it and i was like oh sweet and he was we were literally talking about the act three and how he was going to close it and he was like yeah i don't know necessarily about the act three and da, da, da. And after tiger won the masters i texted him i was like there's your act three there you go and yeah uh, which he's i mean he's a genius i think he's an incredible guy but i was like i was definitely following along like closely like Ooh, how's he going to do this so um but matt's an incredible director he's a genius um i love his movies well cody i think that brings us to the end yeah totally i think we we got through this last month it was a interesting interesting good month i think last last month we were it was a lot of serious topics i like that we had some little back and forth here with some interesting topics and good good month for news so keep our eyes peeled for what's going on in february (laughs) keep keep our eyes peeled for more news totally because because what we know is there will be more news there will be more news there will be more news we we're hitting all the like really smart insightful notes today Totally. So yeah. And the news I'm mainly looking at is we're finally getting snow in Tahoe, potentially. There's like hope on the horizon. So that feels good. I don't know. I kind of want you to just continue your newfound pursuit of becoming a professional cross-country skier. So I sort of secretly kind of hope it doesn't really snow that much. God damn it, don't. Please don't. Apologies to everyone living in the Tahoe area. 
Yeah, no, please don't. I don't I don't want to be like I don't want to make this a habit. Like I don't want to like it, but I might end up kind of liking it, <laughs> right. you know? Like like running. Yeah, exactly. Like it like like the, yeah, you're just a like endurance athlete anymore. No, my my Like remember when we'll be like remember when Cody skied big lines and not you know, not like just skinny skis and and groomed groomed courses. Yeah, totally. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a it's a bad place I'm going to. I continually to <laughs> my wife continues to look at me like, "What are you doing? Who, Who are you?" So, <laughs> who I, did I marry? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, you know, next time, maybe next month, you'll see me and I'll be 15 pounds lighter and be <laughs> wearing spandex on this podcast and being like ah, just got back from another cross-country ski and now i'm going for a run here soon and then <laughs> got my schemo set up i'm gonna go tour up the ski resort <laughs> i can't wait yeah. hey man as always thank you this was fun we'll talk to you real soon sounds good later jonathan all right take care well that's it for this edition of the blister podcast and if you are enjoying these conversations we'd encourage you to subscribe to the blister podcast and leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And who knows, your review might end up getting featured in our Instagram stories or something. Now, I also want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Mount Crested Butte and Gunnison and Crested Butte, Please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.